Hey everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Weird Tales Podcast. My name is Tycho Alhambra. Thank you for listening. If this is your first episode, welcome. We're happy to have you regardless of your race, sexual orientation, or gender identity. The Weird Tales Podcast stands in solidarity with you all. Transcripts of the show are available. The link is in the show notes. I don't have a whole lot to talk about at the top here. Still rocking the old mic with my wife's computer, and hopefully, pray God, Knockwood will be back to normal next week. I was told a two-week turnaround time, so... Oh, wait, I do have something to talk about here. With the recent leaked draft coming out of the Supreme Court, there is understandable anger and frustration and fear floating around. I don't know for sure what to say. I don't know how to give comfort or even if there is any comfort to give. All I can think to say is this. The Weird Tales podcast has always, since its inception and before I even started doing these intros stood in solidarity and supported those who are oppressed. And this is definitely some fascism-level oppression going on. I'm worried. I'm scared. I have fears about the future and the future child my wife and I would like to have. But both I and my wife believe that abortion is health care, that reproductive justice needs to be fought for and protected. All I can say is that you are not alone. You may be scared, you may be terrified, you may be angry, but you are not alone in that. Take that fear, take that anger, and channel it into energy to fight back. Donate to abortion clinics. Donate to candidates who support the right to abortion on your ballot. Vote against anyone who says they stand in support of Roe being overturned. Do whatever it is you can't not do. We've put together some links in the show notes for places to support, and I'll include them in every show hereafter until the right to abortion is made legal. And I say all this knowing full well that someone's going to think I'm overstepping or being preachy again. And if you think that, too bad. Deal with it. I have a platform. I have some influence. And I will use it to do good in the world. My wife and I want to have a child sometime in the future, and I want to be able to look that child in the eye and tell them that I used whatever influence I had to make the world a better place. If you don't like it, doors in the wall. Don't let it hit you where the good Lord split you. Anyway, we're getting into the bit of the story that involves fiendish tickling. Just so you're, you know, ready when that happens. The leap of the cats through space was very swift, and being surrounded by his companions, Carter did not see this time the great black shapelessness that lurks and capers and flounders in the abyss. Before he fully realized what had happened, he was back in his familiar room at the inn at Dilathleen, and the stealthy, friendly cats were pouring out of the window in streams. The old leader from Althar was the last to leave, and as Carter shook his paw, he said he would be able to get home by cockcrow. When dawn came, Carter went downstairs and learned that a week had elapsed since his capture and leaving. There was still nearly a fortnight to wait for the ship bound toward Oriab, and during that time he said what he could against the black galleys in their infamous ways. Most of the townsfolk believed him, yet so fond were the jewelers of great rubies that none would wholly promise to cease trafficking with the wide-mouthed merchants. If aught of evil ever befalls Dilathleen through such traffic, it will not be his fault. In about a week, the desiderate ship put in by the Black Mole and Tall Lighthouse and Carter was glad to see that she was a bark of wholesome men, with painted sides and yellow lateen sails, and a grey captain in silken robes. Her cargo was the fragrant resin of Oriab's inner groves, and the delicate pottery baked by the artists of Baharna, and the strange little figures carved from Ingranic's ancient lava. For this they were paid in the wool of Althar, and the iridescent textiles of Hatheg, and the ivory that the black men carve across the river in Parg. Carter made arrangements with the captain to go to Baharna, and was told that the voyage would take ten days, and during his week of waiting he talked much with that captain of Ingranic, and was told that very few had seen the carven face thereon, but that most travelers are content to learn its legends from old people and lava-gatherers and image-makers in Baharna, and afterwards say in their far homes that they have indeed beheld it. The captain was not even sure that any person now living had beheld that carven face, for the wrong side of Negronic is very difficult and barren and sinister, and there are rumors of caves near the peak wherein dwell the night gaunts. But the captain did not wish to say just what a night gaunt might be like, since such cattle are known to haunt most persistently the dreams of those who think too often of them. 
Then Carter asked that captain about unknown Kadath and the cold waste and the marvelous sunset city. But of these, the good man could truly tell nothing. Carter sailed out of Dilath Lean one early morning when the tide turned and saw the first rays of sunrise on the thin, angular towers of that dismal basalt town. And for two days they sailed eastward in sight of green coasts and saw often the pleasant fishing towns that climbed up steeply with their red roofs and chimney pots from old dreaming wharves and beaches where nets lay drying. But on the third day they turned sharply south where the roll of the water was stronger and soon passed from sight of any land. On the fifth day the sailors were nervous, but the captain apologized for their fears, saying that the ship was about to pass over the weedy walls and broken columns of a sunken city too old for memory, and that, when the water was clear, one could see so many moving shadows in that deep place that simple folk disliked it. He admitted, moreover, that many ships had been lost in that part of the sea, having been hailed when quite close to it, but never seen again. That night the moon was very bright, and one could see a great way down in the water. There was so little wind that the ship could not move much, and the ocean was very calm. Looking over the rail, Carter saw many fathoms deep the dome of a great temple, and in front of it an avenue of unnatural sphinxes leading to what was once a public square. Dolphins sported merrily in and out of the ruins, and porpoises reveled clumsily here and there, sometimes coming to the surface and leaping clear out of the sea. As the ship drifted on a little, the floor of the ocean rose in hills, and one could clearly mark the lines of ancient climbing streets and the washed-down walls of myriad little houses. Then the suburbs appeared, and finally a great lone building on a hill of simpler architecture than the other structures, and in much better repair. It was dark and low, and covered four sides of a square, with a tower at each corner, a paved court in the center, and small round curious windows all over it. Probably it was of basalt, though weeds draped the greater part, and such was its lonely and impressive place on that far hill that it may have been a temple or monastery. Some phosphorescent fish inside it gave the small round windows an aspect of shining, and Carter did not blame the sailors much for their fears. Then, by the watery moonlight, he noticed an odd high monolith in the middle of that central court, and saw that something was tied to it, and when, after getting a telescope from the captain's cabin, he saw that the bound thing was a sailor in the silk robes of Oriab, head downward and without any eyes. He was glad that a rising breeze soon took the ship ahead to more healthy parts of the sea. The next day they spoke with a ship with violet sails bound for Tsar in the land of forgotten dreams, with bulbs of strange colored lilies for cargo. And on the evening of the eleventh day they came in sight of the Isle of Oriab, within granite rising jagged and snow-crowned in the distance. Oriab is a very great isle, and its port of Baharna a mighty city. The wharves of Baharna are of porphyry, and the city rises in great stone terraces behind them, having streets of steps that are frequently arced over by buildings and the bridges between buildings. There is a great canal which goes under the whole city in a tunnel with granite gates and leads to the inland lake of Yath, on whose farther shore are the vast clay-brick ruins of a primal city whose name is not remembered. As the ship drew into the harbor at evening, the twin beacons Thone and Thal gleamed a welcome, and in all the million windows of Baharna's terraces mellow lights peeped out quietly and gradually as the stars peep out overhead in the dusk, till that steep and climbing seaport became a glittering constellation hung between the stars of heaven and the reflections of those stars in the still harbor. The captain, after landing, made Carter a guest in his own small house on the shore of Yaf, where the rear of the town slopes down to it, and his wife and servants brought strange, toothsome foods for the traveler's delight. And in the days after that, Carter asked for rumors and legends of Ingranic in all the taverns and public places where lava-gatherers and image-makers meet, but could find no one who had been up the higher slopes or seen the carven face. Ingranic was a hard mountain with only an accursed valley behind it, and besides, one could never depend on the certainty that night gaunts are altogether fabulous. When the captain sailed back to Dilath Lean, Carter took quarters in an ancient tavern opening on an alley of steps in the original part of the town which is built of brick and resembles the ruins of Yath's farther shore. Here he laid his plans for the ascent of Ingranic and correlated all that he had learned from the lava-gatherers about the roads thither. 
The keeper of the tavern was a very old man and had heard so many legends that he was a great help. He even took Carter to an upper room in that ancient house and showed him a crude picture which a traveler had scratched on the clay wall in the olden days when men were bolder and less reluctant to visit in Granite's higher slopes. The old tavern keeper's great-grandfather had heard from his great-grandfather that the traveler who scratched that picture had climbed in Granite and seen the carven face, here drawing it for others to behold. But Carter had very great doubts, since the large rough features on the wall were hasty and careless, and wholly overshadowed by a crowd of little companion shapes in the worst possible taste, with horns and wings and claws and curling tails. At last, having gained all the information he was likely to gain in the taverns and public places of Maharna, Carter hired a zebra and set out one morning on the road by Yath's shore for those inland parts wherein towers stoning the granite. On his right were rolling hills and pleasant orchards and neat little stone farmhouses, and he was much reminded of those fertile fields that flank the sky. By evening he was near the nameless ancient ruins on Yath's farther shore, and though old lava-gatherers had warned him not to camp there at night, he tethered his zebra to a curious pillar before a crumbling wall and laid his blanket in a sheltered corner beneath some carvings whose meaning none could decipher. Around him he wrapped another blanket, for the nights are cold in Oriab, and when, upon waking, once he thought he felt the wings of some insect brushing his face, he covered his head altogether and slept in peace till roused by the Magah birds in distant resin groves. The sun had just come up over the great slope whereon leagues of primal brick foundations and worn walls and occasional cracked pillars and pedestals stretched down desolate to the shore of Yath, and Carter looked about for his tethered zebra. Great was his dismay to see that docile beast stretched prostrate beside the curious pillar to which it had been tied, and still greater was he vexed on finding that the steed was quite dead, with its blood all sucked away through a singular wound in its throat. His pack had been disturbed and several shiny knick-knacks taken away, and all around on the dusty soil were great webbed footprints for which he could not in any way account. The legends and warnings of lava-gatherers occurred to him, and he thought of what had brushed his face in the night. Then he shouldered his pack and strode on toward Ingranic, though not without a shiver when he saw close to him as the highway passed through the ruins a great gaping arch, low in the wall of an old temple, with steps leading down into darkness farther than he could peer. His course now led uphill through wilder and partly wooded country, and he saw only the huts of charcoal burners and the camps of those who gathered resin from the groves. The whole air was fragrant with balsam, and all the Magah birds sang blithely as they flashed their seven colors in the sun. Near sunset he came on a new camp of lava-gatherers, returning with laden sacks from Ingranic's lower slopes, and here he also camped, listening to the songs and tales of the men, and overhearing what they whispered about a companion they had lost. He had climbed high to reach a mass of fine lava above him, and at nightfall did not return to his fellows. When they looked for him the next day they found only his turban, nor was there any sign on the crags below that he had fallen. They did not search any more, because the old men among them said it would be of no use. No one ever found what the night gaunts took, though those beasts themselves were so uncertain as to be almost fabulous. Carter asked them if night gaunt sucked blood and liked shiny things and left webbed footprints, but they all shook their heads negatively and seemed frightened at his making such an inquiry. When he saw how taciturn they had become, he asked them no more but went to sleep in his blanket. The next day he rose with the lava-gatherers and exchanged farewells as they rode west and he rode east on a zebra he had bought of them. Their older men gave him blessings and warnings and told him he had better not climb too high on Ingranic, but while he thanked them heartily, he was in no wise dissuaded. For still did he feel that he must find the gods on unknown Kadath and win from them away to that haunting and marvelous city in the sunset. By noon, after a long uphill ride, he came upon some abandoned brick villages of the hill people who had once dwelt thus close to Ingranic and carved images from its smooth lava. Here they had dwelt till the days of the old tavern keeper's grandfather, and about that time they felt that their presence was disliked. Their homes had crept even up the mountain's slope, and the higher they built, the more people they would miss when the sun rose. At last they decided it would be better to leave altogether since things were sometimes glimpsed in the darkness which 
no one could interpret favorably. So in the end, all of them went down to the sea and dwelt in Baharna, inhabiting a very old quarter and teaching their sons the old art of image-making, which to this day they carry on. It was from these children of the exiled hill people that Carter had heard the best tales about in Granik when searching through Baharna's ancient taverns. All this time, the great gaunt side of Ingranik was looming up higher and higher as Carter approached it. There were sparse trees on the lower slope and feeble shrubs above them, and then the bare, hideous rock rose spectral into the sky to mix with frost and ice and eternal snow. Carter could see the rifts and ruggedness of that somber stone and did not welcome the prospect of climbing it. In places, there were solid streams of lava and soriac heaps that littered slopes and ledges. Ninety aeons ago, before even the gods had danced upon its pointed peak, that mountain had spoken with fire and roared with the voices of the inner thunders. Now it towered all silent and sinister, bearing on the hidden side that secret titan image whereof rumor told. And there were caves in that mountain which might be empty and alone with the elder darkness, or might, if legend spoke truly, hold horrors of a form not to be surmised. The ground sloped upward to the foot of Ingranic, thinly covered with scrub oaks and ash trees and strewn with bits of rock, lava, and ancient cinder. There were the charred embers of many camps where the lava gatherers were wont to stop, and several rude altars which they had built either to propitiate the Great Ones or to ward off what they dreamed of in Ingranic's high passes in labyrinthine caves. At evening, Carter reached the farthermost pile of embers and camped for the night, tethering his zebra to a sapling and wrapping himself well in his blanket before going to sleep. And all through the night, a vunith howled distantly from the shore of some hidden pool, but Carter felt no fear of that amphibious terror, since he had been told with certainty that not one of them dares even approach the slopes of Ingranic. In the clear sunshine of morning, Carter began the long ascent, taking his zebra as far as that useful beast could go, but tying it to a stunted ash tree when the floor of the thin road became too steep. Thereafter, he scrambled up alone, first through the forest with its ruins of old villages and overgrown clearings, and then over the tough grass where anemic shrubs grew here and there. He regretted coming clear of the trees since the slope was very precipitous and the whole thing rather dizzying. At length, he began to discern all the countryside spread out beneath him whenever he looked around. The deserted huts of the image-makers, the groves of resin trees and the camps of those who gathered from them, the woods where prismatic magas nest and sing, and even a hint very far away of the shores of Yoth and of those forbidding ancient ruins whose name is forgotten. He found it best not to look around and kept on climbing and climbing till the shrubs became very sparse and there was often nothing but the tough grass to cling to. Then the soil became meager with great patches of bare rock cropping out, and now and then the nest of a condor in a crevice. Finally, there was nothing at all but the bare rock, and had it not been very rough and weathered, he could scarcely have ascended farther. Knobs, ledges, and pinnacles, however, helped greatly, and it was cheering to see occasionally the sign of some lava-gatherer scratched clumsily in the friable stone, and knew that wholesome human creatures had been there before him. After a certain height, the presence of man was further shown by handholds and footholds hewn where they were needed, and by little quarries and excavations where some choice vein or stream of lava had been found. In one place, a narrow ledge had been chopped artificially to an especially rich deposit far to the right of the main line of ascent. Once or twice, Carter dared to look around and was almost stunned by the spread of landscape below. All the island betwixt him and the coast lay open to his sight, with Baharna's stone terraces and the smoke of its chimneys mystical in the distance and beyond that the illimitable southern sea, with all its curious secrets. Thus far there had been much winding around the mountain, so that the farther and carven side was still hidden. Carter now saw a ledge running upward and to the left, which seemed to head the way he wished, and this course he took in the hope that it might prove continuous. After ten minutes he saw it was indeed no cul-de-sac, but that it led steeply on in an arc after a few hours climbing to that unknown southern slope overlooking the desolate crags and the accursed valley of lava. As new country came into view below him, he saw that it was bleaker and wilder than those seaward lands he had traversed. 
The mountainside, too, was somewhat different, being here pierced by curious cracks and caves not found on the straighter route he had left. Some of these were above him and some beneath him, all opening on sheerly perpendicular cliffs and wholly unreachable by the feet of man. The air was very cold now, but so hard was the climbing that he did not mind it. Only the increasing rarity bothered him, and he thought that perhaps it was this which had turned the heads of other travelers and excited those absurd tales of night gaunts whereby they explained the loss of such climbers as fell from these perilous paths. He was not much impressed by travelers' tales, but had a good curved scimitar in case of any trouble. All lesser thoughts were lost in the wish to see that carven face which might set him on the track of the gods atop unknown Kadath. At last, in the fearsome iciness of upper space, he came round fully to the hidden side of Ingranic and saw in infinite gulfs below him the lesser crags and sterile abysses of lava which marked the olden wrath of the Great Ones. There was unfolded, too, a vast expanse of country to the south, but it was a desert land without fair fields or cottage chimneys and seemed to have no ending. No trace of the sea was visible on this side, for Oriab is a great island. Black caverns and odd crevices were still numerous on the sheer vertical cliffs, but none of them was accessible to a climber. There now loomed aloft a great beetling mass which hampered the upward view, and Carter was for a moment shaken with doubt lest it prove impassable. Poised in windy insecurity miles above earth, with only space and death on one side and only slippery walls of rock on the other, he knew for a moment the fear that makes men shun Ingranic's hidden side. He could not turn round, yet the sun was already low. If there was no way aloft, the night would find him crouching there still, and the dawn would not find him at all. But there was a way, and he saw it in due season. Only a very expert dreamer could have used those imperceptible footholds, yet to Carter they were sufficient. Surmounting now the outward hanging rock, he found the slope above much easier than that below, since a great glacier's melting had left a generous space with loam and ledges. To the left, a precipice dropped straight from unknown heights to unknown depths, with a cave's dark mouth just out of reach above him. Elsewhere, however, the mountain slanted back strongly, and even gave him space to lean and rest. He felt from the chill that he must be near the snow line, and looked up to see what glittering pinnacles might be shining in that late ruddy sunlight. Surely enough, there was the snow uncounted thousands of feet above, and below it a great beetling crag like that he had just climbed, hanging there forever in bold outline, black against the white of the frozen peak, and when he saw that crag he gasped and cried out aloud and clutched at the jagged rock in awe, for the titan bulge had not stayed as earth's dawn had shaped it, but gleamed red and stupendous in the sunset with the carved and polished features of a god. Stern and terrible shone that face that the sunset lit with fire. How vast it was no mind can ever measure, but Carter knew at once that man could never have fashioned it. It was a god, chiseled by the hands of the gods, and it looked down haughty and majestic upon the seeker. Rumor had said it was strange and not to be mistaken, and Carter saw that it was indeed so, for those long narrow eyes and long lobed ears and that thin nose and pointed chin all spoke of a race that is not of men but of gods. He clung overawed in that lofty and perilous airy, even though it was this which he had expected and come to find, for there is in a god's face more of marvel than prediction can tell, and when that face is vaster than a great temple and seen looking down at sunset in the cryptic silences of that upper world from whose dark lava it was divinely hewn of old, the marvel is so strong that none may escape it. Here, too, was the added marvel of recognition, for although he had planned to search all dreamland over for those whose likeness to this face might mark them as the god's children, he now knew that he need not do so. Certainly the great face carved on that mountain was of no strange sort, but the kin of such as he had seen often in the taverns of the seaport, Salafaeus, which lies in Uth Nargai beyond the Tenarian hills, and is ruled over by that king Curanes, whom Carter once knew in waking life. Every year sailors with such a face came in dark ships from the north to trade their onyx for the carved jade and spun gold and little red singing birds of Salafaeus, and it was clear that these could be no other than the half-gods he sought. Where they dwelt there must the cold waste lie close, and within it, 
unknown Kadath and its onyx castle for the Great Ones. So to Selephaeus he must go, far distant from the Isle of Oriab, and in such parts as would take him back to Dilath Lean, and up the sky to the bridge by Near, and again into the enchanted wood of the Zugs, whence the way would bend northward through the garden lands of Ucranus to the gilded spires of Thrawn, where he might find a galleon bound over the Serenarian Sea. But dusk was now thick, and the great cavern face looked down even sterner in shadow. Perched on that ledge, night found the seeker, and in the blackness he might neither go down nor go up, but only stand and cling and shiver in that narrow place till the day came, praying to keep awake lest sleep loose his hold and send him down the dizzy miles of air to the crags and sharp rocks of the accursed valley. The stars came out, but save for them there was only black nothingness in his eyes. Nothingness leagued with death against whose beckoning he might do no more than cling to the rocks and lean back away from an unseen brink. The last thing of earth that he saw in the gloaming was a condor soaring close to the westward precipice beside him and darting, screaming away when it came near the cave whose mouth yawned just out of reach. Suddenly, without a warning sound in the dark, Carter felt his curved scimitar drawn stealthily out of his belt by some unseen hand. Then he heard it clatter down over the rocks below, and between him and the Milky Way, he thought he saw a very terrible outline of something noxiously thin and horned and tailed and bat-winged. Other things, too, had begun to blot out patches of stars west of him, as if a flock of vague entities were flapping thickly and silently out of that inaccessible cave in the face of the precipice. Then a sort of cold, rubbery arm seized his neck, and something else seized his feet, and he was lifted inconsiderately up and swung about in space. Another minute, and the stars were gone, and Carter knew that the night-gaunts had got him. They bore him breathless into that cliffside cavern and through monstrous labyrinths beyond. When he struggled, as at first he did by instinct, they tickled him with deliberation. They made no sound at all themselves, and even their membranous wings were silent. They were frightfully cold and damp and slippery, and their paws needed one detestably. Soon they were plunging hideously downward through inconceivable abysses in a whirling, giddying, sickening rush of dank tomb-like air, and Carter felt they were shooting into the ultimate vortex of shrieking and demonic madness. He screamed again and again, but whenever he did so the black paws tickled him with greater subtlety. Then he saw a sort of gray phosphorescence about, and guessed they were coming even to that inner world of subterrene horror of which dim legends tell, and which is lit only by the pale death-fire wherewith reeks the ghoulish air and the primal mists of the pits at Earth's core. At last, far below him, he saw faint lines of gray and ominous pinnacles which he knew must be the fabled peaks of Thok. Awful and sinister they stand in the haunted dusk of sunless and eternal depths, higher than man may reckon, and guarding terrible valleys where the bulls crawl and burrow nastily. But Carter preferred to look at them than at his captors, which were indeed shocking and uncouth black beings with smooth, oily, whale-like surfaces, unpleasant horns that curved inward toward each other, bat wings whose beating made no sound, ugly prehensile paws and barbed tails that lashed needlessly and disquietingly, and worst of all, they never spoke or laughed, and never smiled, because they had no faces at all to smile with but only a suggestive blankness where a face ought to be. All they ever did was clutch and fly and tickle. That was the way of Nightgaunts. As the band flew lower, the peaks of Thok rose gray and towering on all sides, and one saw clearly that nothing lived on that austere and impassive granite of the endless twilight. At still lower levels, the death fires in the air gave out, and one met only the primal blackness of the void save aloft where the thin peaks stood out, goblin-like. Soon the peaks were very far away, and nothing about but great rushing winds with the dankness of nethermost grottoes in them. Then, in the end, the night gaunts landed on a floor of unseen things which felt like layers of bones, and left Carter all alone in that black valley. To bring him thither was the duty of the night gaunts that guard in Granick, and this done, they flapped away silently. When Carter tried to trace their flight, he found he could not, 
since even the peaks of Thok had faded out of sight. There was nothing anywhere but blackness and horror and silence and bones. Now Carter knew from a certain source that he was in the Vale of Nath, where crawl and burrow the enormous bulls, but he did not know what to expect because no one had ever seen a bull or even guessed what such a thing may be like. Bulls are known only by dim rumor from the rustling they make amongst mountains of bones and the slimy touch they have when they wriggle past one. They cannot be seen because they creep only in the dark. Carter did not wish to meet a bull, so listened intently for any sound in the unknown depths of bones about him. Even in this fearsome place he had a plan and an objective, for whispers of Nath and its approaches were not unknown to one with whom he had talked much in the old days. In brief, it seemed fairly likely that this was the spot into which all the ghouls of the waking world cast the refuse of their feastings, and that if he had but good luck, he might stumble upon that mighty crag, taller even than Thok's peaks, which marks the edge of their domain. Showers of bones would tell him where to look, and once found, he could call to a ghoul to let down a ladder, for strange to say, he had a very singular link with these terrible creatures. A man he had known in Boston, a painter of strange pictures with a secret studio in an ancient and unhallowed alley near a graveyard, had actually made friends with the ghouls and had taught him to understand the simpler part of their disgusting meeping and glibbering. This man had vanished at last, and Carter was not sure but that he might find him now, and used for the first time in dreamland that faraway English of his dim waking life. In any case, he felt he could persuade a ghoul to guide him out of Noth, and it would be better to meet a ghoul which one could see than a bull which one cannot see. So Carter walked in the dark and ran when he thought he heard something among the bones underfoot. Once he bumped into a stony slope and knew it must be the base of one of Thok's peaks. Then at last he heard a monstrous rattling and clatter which reached far up in the air and became sure he had come nigh the crag of the ghouls. He was not sure he could be heard from this valley miles below, but realized that the inner world has strange laws. As he pondered, he was struck by a flying bone so heavy that it must have been a skull, and therefore realizing his nearness to the fateful crag, he sent up as best he might that meeping cry which is the call of the ghoul. Sound travels slowly so that it was some time before he heard an answering glibber, but it came at last, and before long he was told that a rope ladder would be lowered. The wait for this was very tense, since there was no telling what might not have been stirred up among those bones by his shouting. Indeed, it was not long before he actually did hear a vague rustling afar off. As this thoughtfully approached, he became more and more uncomfortable, for he did not wish to move away from the spot where the ladder would come. Finally, the tension grew almost unbearable, and he was about to flee in panic when the thud of something on the newly heaped bones nearby drew his notice from the other sound. It was the ladder, and after a minute of groping he had it taut in his hands. But the other sound did not cease and followed him even as he climbed. He had gone fully five feet from the ground when the rattling beneath waxed emphatic and was a good ten feet up when something swayed the ladder from below. At a height which must have been fifteen or twenty feet, he felt his whole side brushed by a great slippery length which grew alternately convex and concave with wriggling, and thereafter he climbed desperately to escape the unendurable nuzzling of that loathsome and overfed bull whose form no man might see. For hours he climbed with aching arms and blistered hands, seeing again the gray death fire and Thok's uncomfortable pinnacles. At last he discerned above him the projecting edge of the great crag of the ghouls, whose vertical side he could not glimpse, and hours later he saw a curious face peering over it, as a gargoyle peers over a parapet of Notre Dame. This almost made him lose his hold through faintness, but a moment later he was himself again, for his vanished friend, Richard Pickman, had once introduced him to a ghoul, and he knew well their canine faces and slumping forms and unmentionable idiosyncrasies. So he had himself well under control when that hideous thing pulled him out of the dizzy emptiness over the edge of the crag, and did not scream at the partly consumed refuse heaped at one side, or at the squatting circles of ghouls who gnawed and watched curiously. He was now on a dim-lit plain, whose sole topographical features were great boulders and the entrance of burrows. 
The ghouls were, in general, respectful, even if one did attempt to pinch him while several others eyed his leanness speculatively. Through patient glibbering, he made inquiries regarding his vanished friend and found he had become a ghoul of some prominence in Abyss's nearer the waking world. A greenish elderly ghoul offered to conduct him to Pikmin's present habitation, so despite a natural loathing, he followed the creature into a capacious burrow and crawled after him for hours in the blackness of rank mold. They emerged on a dim plain strewn with singular relics of earth-old gravestones, broken urns, and grotesque fragments of monuments, and Carter realized with some emotion that he was probably nearer the waking world than at any other time since he had gone down the seven hundred steps from the Cavern of Flame to the Gate of Deeper Slumber. There, on a tombstone of 1768 stolen from the granary burying ground in Poston, sat the ghoul which was once the artist Richard Upton Pickman. It was naked and rubbery and had acquired so much of the ghoulish physiognomy that its human origin was already obscure, but it still remembered a little English and was able to converse with Carter in grunts and monosyllables, helped out now and then by the glibbering of ghouls. When it learned that Carter wished to get to the Enchanted Wood and from there to the city Salafaeus in Uthnargai beyond the Tenarian Hills, it seemed rather doubtful, for these ghouls of the waking world do no business in the graveyards of Upper Dreamland, leaving that to the web-footed womps that are spawned in dead cities, and many things intervene betwixt their gulf and the enchanted wood, including the terrible kingdom of the Gugs. The Gugs, hairy and gigantic, once reared stone circles in that wood and made strange sacrifices to the other gods and the crawling chaos Nyarlathotep until one night an abomination of theirs reached the ears of Earth's gods, and they were banished to caverns below. Only a great trap-door of stone with an iron ring connects the abyss of the Earth ghouls with the enchanted wood, and this the gugs are afraid to open because of a curse. That a mortal dreamer could traverse their cavern realm and leave by that door is inconceivable, for mortal dreamers were their former food, and they have legends of the toothsomeness of such dreamers, even though banishment has restricted their diet to the ghasts, those repulsive beings which die in the light and which live in the vaults of Zin and leap on long hind legs like kangaroos. So the ghoul that was Pikmin advised Carter either to leave the abyss at Sarkamond, that deserted city in the valley below Lang where black nitrous stairways guarded by winged diorite lions lead down from the dreamland to the lower gulfs, or to return through a churchyard to the waking world, and begin the quest anew down the seventy steps of light slumber to the cavern of flame and the seven hundred steps to the gate of deeper slumber and the enchanted wood. This, however, did not suit the seeker, for he knew nothing of the way from Lang to Uthnargai, and was likewise reluctant to awake lest he forget all that he had so far gained in this dream. It were disastrous to his quest to forget the august and celestial faces of those seamen from the north who traded onyx and Salafaeus, and who, being the sons of gods, must point the way to the cold waste and Kedath, where the great ones dwell. After much persuasion, the ghoul consented to guide his guest inside the great wall of the Gug's kingdom. There was one chance that Carter might be able to steal through that twilight realm of circular stone towers at an hour when the giants would be all gorged and snoring indoors and reach the central tower with the sign of Koth upon it, which has the stairs leading up to that stone trap door in the enchanted wood. Pikmin even consented to lend three ghouls to help with a tombstone lever in raising the stone door, for of ghouls the gugs are somewhat afraid, and they often flee from their own colossal graveyards when they see feasting there. He also advised Carter to disguise as a ghoul himself, shaving the beard he was allowed to grow, for ghouls have none, wallowing naked in the mud to get the correct surface, and loping in the usual slumping way with his clothing carried in a bundle as if it were a choice morsel from a tomb. They would reach the city of the Gugs, which is coterminous with the whole kingdom, through the proper burrows, emerging in a cemetery not far from the stair-containing tower of Koth. They must beware, however, of a large cave near the cemetery, for this is the mouth of the vaults of Zin, and the vindictive ghasts are always on watch there murderously for those denizens of the upper abyss who haunt and prey on them. The ghasts try to come out when the Gugs sleep, and they attack ghouls as readily as Gugs, 
for they cannot discriminate. They are very primitive and eat one another. The Gugs have a sentry at a narrow place in the vaults of Zin, but he is often drowsy and is sometimes surprised by a party of ghasts. Though ghasts cannot live in real light, they can endure the gray twilight of the abyss for hours. So at length Carter crawled through endless burrows with three helpful ghouls bearing the slate gravestone of Colonel Nehemiah Derby, albeit 1719, from the Charter Street burying ground in Salem. When they came again into open twilight, they were in a forest of vast lichened monoliths reaching nearly as high as the eye could see and forming the modest gravestones of the Gugs. On the right of the hole out of which they wriggled and seen through aisles of monoliths was a stupendous vista of cyclopean round towers mounting up illimitable into the gray air of inner earth. This was the great city of the Gugs, whose doorways are thirty feet high. Ghouls come here often, for a buried Gug will feed a community for almost a year, and even with the added peril it is better to burrow for Gugs than to bother with the graves of men. Carter now understood the occasional tightened bones he had felt beneath him in the Valley of Nath. Straight ahead and just outside the cemetery rose a sheer perpendicular cliff at whose base an immense and forbidding cavern yawned. This, the ghouls told Carter to avoid as much as possible, since it was the entrance to the unhallowed vaults of Zin, where Gugs hunt ghasts in the darkness. And truly that warning was soon well justified, for the moment a ghoul began to creep toward the towers to see if the hour of the Gugs resting had been rightly timed, there glowed in the gloom of that great cavern's mouth first one pair of yellowish-red eyes, and then another, implying that the Gugs were one century less, and that ghasts have indeed an excellent sharpness of smell. So the ghoul returned to the burrow and motioned his companions to be silent. It was best to leave the ghasts to their own devices, and there was a possibility that they might soon withdraw since they must naturally be rather tired after coping with a Gug sentry in the black vaults. After a moment, something about the size of a small horse hopped out into the gray twilight, and Carter turned sick at the aspect of that scabrous and unwholesome beast, whose face is so curiously human despite the absence of a nose, a forehead, and other important particulars. Presently, three other ghasts hopped out to join their fellow, and a ghoul glibbered softly at Carter that their absence of battle scars was a bad sign. It proved that they had not fought the Gug sentry at all, but merely slipped past him as he slept, so that their strength and savagery were still unimpaired and would remain so till they had found and disposed of a victim. It was very unpleasant to see those filthy and disproportioned animals, which soon numbered about fifteen, grubbing about and making their kangaroo leaps in the gray twilight where titan towers and monoliths arose, but it was still more unpleasant when they spoke among themselves in the coughing gutturals of ghasts. And yet, horrible as they were, they were not so horrible as what presently came out of the cave after them with disconcerting suddenness. It was a paw, fully two feet and a half across, and equipped with formidable talons. After it came another paw, and after that a great black-furred arm to which both of the paws were attached by short forearms. Then two pink eyes shone, and the head of the awakened Gug sentry, large as a barrel, wobbled into view. The eyes jutted two inches from each side, shaded by bony protuberances overgrown with coarse hairs. But the head was chiefly terrible because of the mouth. That mouth had great yellow fangs and ran from the top to the bottom of the head, opening vertically instead of horizontally. But before that unfortunate Gug could emerge from the cave and rise to his full twenty feet, the vindictive ghasts were upon him. Carter feared for a moment that he would give an alarm and arouse all his kin, till a ghoul softly glibbered that Gugs have no voice, but talk by means of facial expression. The battle which then ensued was truly a frightful one. From all sides the venomous ghasts rushed feverishly at the creeping Gug, nipping and tearing with their muzzles and mauling murderously with their hard-pointed hooves. All the time they coughed excitedly, screaming when the great vertical mouth of the Gug would occasionally bite into one of their number, so that the noise of the combat would surely have aroused the sleeping city, had not the weakening of the sentry begun to transfer the action farther and farther within the cavern. As it was, the tumult soon receded altogether from sight in the blackness, with only occasional evil echoes to mark its continuance. Then the most alert of the ghouls gave the signal for all to advance, 
and Carter followed the loping three out of the forest of monoliths and into the dark, noisome streets of that awful city, whose rounded towers of cyclopean stone soared up beyond the sight. Silently they shambled over that rough rock pavement, hearing with disgust the abominable muffled snortings from great black doorways which marked the slumber of the gugs. Apprehensive of the ending of the rest hour, the ghouls set a somewhat rapid pace, but even so the journey was no brief one, for distances in that town of giants are on a great scale. At last, however, they came to a somewhat open space before a tower even vaster than the rest, above whose colossal doorway was fixed a monstrous symbol in bas-relief, which made one shudder without knowing its meaning. This was the central tower with the sign of Koth, and those huge stone steps just visible through the dusk within were the beginning of the great flight leading to Upper Dreamland and the Enchanted Wood. There now began a climb of interminable length in utter blackness, made almost impossible by the monstrous size of the steps which were fashioned for gugs and were therefore nearly a yard high. Of their number, Carter could form no just estimate, for he soon became so worn out that the tireless and elastic ghouls were forced to aid him. All through the endless climb there lurked the peril of detection and pursuit, for though no gug dares lift the stone door to the forest because of the Great One's curse, there are no such restraints concerning the tower and the steps, and escaped ghasts are often chased even to the very top. So sharp are the ears of gugs that the bare feet and hands of the climbers might readily be heard when the city awoke, and it would of course take but little time for the striding giants, accustomed from their ghast hunts in the vaults of Zin to seeing without light, to overtake their smaller and slower quarry on those cyclopean steps. It was very depressing to reflect that the silently pursuing gugs would not be heard at all, but would come very suddenly and shockingly in the dark upon the climbers. Nor could the traditional fear of gugs for ghouls be depended on in that peculiar place where the advantages lay so heavily with the gugs. There was also some peril from the furtive and venomous ghasts which, which frequently hopped up into the tower during the sleep hour of the gugs. The gugs slept long, and the ghasts returned soon from their deed in the cavern, the scent of the climbers might easily be picked up by those loathsome and ill-disposed things, in which case it would almost be better to be eaten by a gug. Then, after aeons of climbing, there came a cough from the darkness above, and matters assumed a very grave and unexpected turn. It was clear that a ghast, or perhaps even more, had strayed into that tower before the coming of Carter and his guards, and it was equally clear that this peril was very close. After a breathless second, the leading ghoul pushed Carter to the wall and arranged his two kinsfolk in the best possible way, with the old slate tombstone raised for a crushing blow whenever the enemy might come in sight. Ghouls can see in the dark, so the party was not as badly off as Carter would have been alone. In another moment, the clatter of hooves revealed the downward hopping of at least one beast, and the slab-bearing ghouls poised their weapon for a desperate blow. Presently, two yellowish-red eyes flashed into view, and the panting of the ghast became audible above its clattering. As it hopped down to the step just above the ghouls, they wielded the ancient gravestone with prodigious force, so that there was only a wheeze and a choking before the victim collapsed into a noxious heap. There seemed to be only this one animal, and after a moment of listening, the ghouls tapped Carter as a signal to proceed again. As before, they were obliged to aid him, and he was glad to leave that place of carnage where the ghast's uncouth remains sprawled invisible in the blackness. At last, the ghouls brought their companion to a halt, and feeling above him, Carter realized that the great stone trap door was reached at last. To open so vast a thing completely was not to be thought of, but the ghouls hoped to get it up just enough to slip the gravestone under as a prop and permit Carter to escape through the crack. They themselves planned to descend again and return through the city of the Gugs, since their elusiveness was great, and they did not know the way over land to spectral Sarkamond with its lion-guarded gate to the abyss. Mighty was the straining of those three ghouls at the stone of the door above them, and Carter helped push with as much strength as he had. They judged the edge next to the top of the staircase to be the right one, and to this they bent all the force of their disreputably nourished muscles. After a few moments a crack of light appeared, and Carter, to whom that task had been entrusted, slipped the end of the old gravestone in the aperture. There now ensued a mighty heaving, 
but progress was very slow, and they had, of course, to return to their first position every time they failed to turn the slab and prop the portal open. Suddenly, their desperation was magnified a thousandfold by a sound on the steps below them. It was only the thumping and rattling of the slain ghast's hooved body as it rolled down to lower levels, but of all the possible causes of that body's dislodgement and rolling, none was in the least reassuring. Therefore, knowing the way of Guggs, the ghouls set to with something of a frenzy, and in a surprisingly short time had the door so high that they were able to hold it still whilst Carter turned the slab and left a generous opening. They now helped Carter through, letting him climb up to their rubbery shoulders, and later guiding his feet as he clutched at the blessed soil of the upper dreamland outside. Another second, and they were through themselves, knocking away the gravestone and closing the great trap door while a panting became audible beneath. Because of the Great One's curse, no Gug might ever emerge from that portal, so with a deep relief and sense of repose, Carter lay quietly on the thick, grotesque fungi of the enchanted wood while his guides squatted near in the manner that ghouls rest. Weird as was that enchanted wood through which he had fared so long ago, it was verily a haven and a delight after the gulfs he had now left behind. There was no living denizen about, for Zoogs shunned the mysterious door in fear, and Carter at once consulted with his ghouls about their future course. To return through the tower they no longer dared, and the waking world did not appeal to them when they learned that they must pass the priest's nasht and common thaw in the Cavern of Flame. So at length they decided to return through Sarkamond and its gate of the abyss, though of how to get there they knew nothing. Carter recalled that it lies in the valley below Leng, and recalled likewise that he had seen in Dilathleen a sinister, slant-eyed old merchant reputed to trade on Leng. Therefore he advised the ghouls to seek out Dilathleen, crossing the fields to Nier and the sky, and following the river to its mouth. This they had once resolved to do, and lost no time in loping off, since the thickening of the dusk promised a full night ahead for travel. And Carter shook the paws of those repulsive beasts, thanking them for their help and sending his gratitude to the beast which once was Pikmin, but could not help sighing with pleasure when they left. For a ghoul is a ghoul, and at best an unpleasant companion for man. After that, Carter sought a forest pool and cleansed himself of the mud of nether earth, thereupon reassuming the clothes he had so carefully carried. It was now night in that redoubtable wood of monstrous trees, but because of the phosphorescence one might travel as well by day. Wherefore Carter set out upon the well-known route towards Salafaeus in Uthnargai beyond the Tenarian hills. And as he went, he thought of the zebra he had left tethered to an ash tree on Ingranic in faraway Oriab so many aeons ago, and wondered if any lava gatherer had fed and released it. And he wondered, too, if he would ever return to Baharna and pay for the zebra that was slain by night in those ancient ruins by Yoth's shore, and if the old tavern keeper would remember him. Such were the thoughts that came to him in the air of the regained upper dreamland. But presently his progress was halted by a sound from a very large hollow tree. He had avoided the great circle of stones since he did not care to speak with Zugs just now, but it appeared from the singular fluttering in that huge tree that important councils were in session elsewhere. Upon drawing nearer he made out the accents of a tense and heated discussion, and before long became conscious of matters which he viewed with the greatest concern, for a war on the cats was under debate in that sovereign assembly of Zugs. It all came from the loss of the party which had sneaked after Carter to Althar, and which the cats had justly punished for unsuitable intentions. The matter had long rankled, and now, or within at least a month, the marshaled Zugs were about to strike the whole feline tribe in a series of surprise attacks, taking individual cats or group of cats unawares, and giving not even the myriad cats of Althar a proper chance to drill and mobilize. This was the plan of the Zugs, and Carter saw that he must foil it before leaving on his mighty quest. Very quietly, therefore, did Randolph Carter steal to the edge of the wood and send the cry of the cat over the starlit fields, and a great grimalkin in a nearby cottage took up the burden and related across leagues of rolling meadow to warriors large and small, black, gray, tiger, white, yellow, and mixed, and it echoed through near and beyond the sky, even into Althar, and Althar's numerous cats called in chorus and fell into a line of march. 
It was fortunate that the moon was not up so that all the cats were on earth. Swiftly and silently leaping, they sprang from every hearth and housetop and poured in a great furry sea across the plains to the edge of the wood. Carter was there to greet them, and the sight of shapely, wholesome cats was indeed good for his eyes after the things he had seen and walked with in the abyss. He was glad to see his venerable friend and one-time rescuer at the head of Althar's detachment, a collar of rank around his sleek neck and whiskers bristling at a martial angle. Better still, as a sub-lieutenant in that army was a brisk young fellow who proved to be none other than the very little kitten at the inn to whom Carter had given a saucer of rich cream on that long-vanished morning in Althar. He was a strapping and promising cat now, and purred as he shook hands with his friend. His grandfather said he was doing very well in the army, and that he might well expect a captaincy after one more campaign. Carter now outlined the peril of the cat tribe, and was rewarded by deep-throated purrs of gratitude from all sides. Consulting with the generals, he prepared a plan of instant action which involved marching at once upon the Zug Council and other known strongholds of Zugs, forestalling their surprise attacks and forcing them to terms before the mobilization of their army of invasion. Thereupon, without a moment's loss, that great ocean of cats flooded the enchanted wood and surged around the council tree in the great stone circle. Flutterings rose to panic pitch as the enemy saw the newcomers, and there was very little resistance among the furtive and curious brown zoogs. They saw that they were beaten in advance, and turned from thoughts of vengeance to thoughts of present self-preservation. Half the cats now seated themselves in a circular formation with the captured zoogs in the center, leaving open a lane down which were marched the additional captives rounded up by the other cats in other parts of the wood. Terms were discussed at length, Carter acting as interpreter, and it was decided that the Zoogs might remain a free tribe on condition of rendering to the cats a large annual tribute of grouse, quail, and pheasants from the less fabulous parts of their forest. Twelve young Zoogs of noble families were taken as hostages to be kept in the temple of the cats at Althar, and the victors made it plain that any disappearance of cats on the borders of the Zoog domain would be followed by consequences highly disastrous to Zoogs. These matters disposed of, the assembled cats broke ranks and permitted the Zoogs to slink off one by one to their respective homes, which they hastened to do with many a sullen backward glance. The old cat general now offered Carter an escort through the forest to whatever border he wished to reach, deeming it likely that the Zoogs would harbor dire resentment against him for the frustration of their warlike enterprise. This offer he welcomed with gratitude, not only for the safety it afforded, but because he liked the graceful companionship of cats. So, in the midst of a pleasant and playful regiment, relaxed after the successful performance of its duty, Randolph Carter walked with dignity through that enchanted and phosphorescent wood of Titan trees, talking of his quest with the old general and his grandson, whilst others of the band indulged in fantastic gambles or chased fallen leaves that the wind drove among the fungi of the primeval floor. And the old cat said that he had heard much of unknown Kadath in the cold waste, but did not know where it was. As for the marvelous Sunset City, he had not even heard of that, but would gladly relate to Carter anything he might later learn. He gave the Seeker some passwords of great value among the cats of Dreamland, and commended him especially to the old chief of the cats in Salafaeus, whither he was bound. That old cat, already slightly known to Carter, was a dignified Maltese, and would prove highly influential in any transaction. It was dawn when they came to the proper edge of the wood, and Carter bade his friends a reluctant farewell. The young sub-lieutenant he had met as a small kitten would have followed him had not the old general forbidden it, but that austere patriarch insisted that the path of duty lay within the tribe and the army. So Carter set out alone over the golden fields that stretched mysterious beside a willow-fringed river, and the cats went back into the wood. Well did the traveler know those garden lands that lie betwixt the wood and the Serenarian Sea, and blithely did he follow the singing river Ukronos that marked his course. The sun rose higher over gentle slopes of grove and lawn, and heightened the colors of the thousand flowers that starred each knoll and dingle. A blessed haze lies upon all this region wherein is held a little more of the sunlight than other places hold, and a little more of the summer's humming music of birds and bees so that men walk through it as through a fairy place, and feel greater joy and wonder than they ever afterward remember.
And that is the end of part two. My goal is to get this done by the end of May, leaving Pride Month for just the Pride Month story and readers, but I'm having issues with the pacing and the reading and my own patience with recording and editing, so I don't know. We'll see what happens. A decision will be made at some point. Eh? Anyway, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy the show and want to help support it, please feel free to join my Patreon, patreon.com slash Podcast. Ryan Patrick, Ineptus Astartes, Matthias Hansen, and Mark Vincette, thank you so much for your support. I really appreciate you all. Please, please, please go and get vaccinated if you haven't already and get boosted. Continue to wear a mask even if you are. Punch a racist in the face and always remember that the most important step a person can take is always the next one. Great was his dismay to see that docile beast stretched prostate behind... <sighs> so to Salafaeus he must go, far distant from the Isle of Oriab, and in such parts as would take him back to Dilathleen, and up the sky to the bridge by Near, and again into the enchanted wood of the Zugs, whence the way would bend northward through the garden lands of Ucranus to the gilded spires of Thrawn, where he might find a galleon bound over the Serenarian Sea. One shot that sentence. Thank you very much.